0: I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to the book of James, chapter 1. And we are going this morning to continue our study through this amazing book. And we are going to be listening to our guide, James, as he takes us on this journey, start to turn a corner. You remember what James is up to. James is encouraging his readers. Now, remember, he's a pastor. So Pastor James is writing to the first church, the first official believers in the first church that ever existed in the history of New Testament Christianity. And many of these people had been scattered to all kinds of places and all kinds of, of contexts. And their pastor, James, is writing them. And he is saying to them, Wherever you are, you need to be living out your faith in a way that is dynamic and impactful. And in order for you to do that, you have to have a certain kind of faith. The kind of faith that is going to make a difference uh, in the hearts of men and that is going to be acceptable to God is a faith that is wholehearted. It is single-focused. And it is fully trusting in God and in his word. And we've been saying that together almost every Sunday, and I want to do it again today because I want Pastor James to drive that truth home into our hearts. The kind of faith that that God is wanting to develop in you and to develop in me is a living faith that we can display to the dying world around us. And that faith is wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. So let's say that together, right? A living faith is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. Let's do it again. A living faith is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. And just so we don't forget, let's do it one more time. Our living faith must be wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in God and in His Word. So for the first half of James... Beginning in verse 2 and going all the way down to verse 18, James has been telling us how God develops that kind of wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting, living faith in us. And he uses two things. He uses trials and he uses his word. And then we found out that there is an enemy who is coming to do everything he can to distract us and to divert us from a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, And he's going to take the pressure and the pain that goes along with that trial, and he is going to turn all of that to a different end. He's going to turn that trial that God intends to build that wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. Satan is going to take that pressure, that trial, and he's going to turn it into a what? You remember what the word we use? He's going to turn it into a temptation. And so how in the world are we going to survive the temptations that come upon us? And James says, God, the Father of lights, has sent down a good and perfect gift from above. And that good and perfect gift is the word of truth that birthed you into the new life that you enjoy as a Christian. You were born again by the will of God through the word of truth, and you function now as firstfruits. And we noted that the idea of firstfruits was that James is talking about the fact that there is a creation that God created originally that wandered. And so what did God, the Father of lights, do with his wandering creation? He intends to restore it. He intends to do with all of creation what he tells the spiritual readers of James to do in James chapter 5 verse 19 and 20 with the brother who is wandering when the brother wanders James says go find him and restore him and God is saying when creation wandered I am going to restore creation and the proof of that is that I have used the word of truth to rebirth a new creation and that's you and that's me And we are the first fruits of the amazing shalom that God is going to restore to the universe. And so this is an amazing thing. So that's what God is up to. God is developing in you and he's developing in me this wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith that is the evidence, the beautiful evidence of the power of the gospel to rescue people and release people from sin. Now, what are we supposed to do with that faith? That's where James goes next. So beginning in verse 19 and going all the way down to verse 27, James is going to turn the corner. It's like we're, we're going on the trail, and now James turns a little corner on the trail, and he says, before we get to the next section, I want to tell you exactly what God wants you to do with the faith that he's been developing. He wants you to d- display it. You are to display your living faith in ways that are acceptable to God and credible to men. Now, James has a unique way of talking about this. He's going to use a word that we don't usually use when we talk about authentic faith. He's going to use the word religion. You can actually see that word in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is what? religious. And then you can see it down at the end of that verse again. This person's religion is worthless. And then in verse 27, he's going to say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. So James is introducing a word to us that we typically don't use Because in our world and in our day and in our age, that word has sort of like empty connotations. But the word James uses here is a very important word for him, and it's the word for practicing your faith. For the outward practice of your faith. So what James is saying is this, your wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith is not a private matter. God did not intend for that to be between you and him alone. The reason that God is developing that in us is because he intends for us to practice that wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith before him and before others because God has a purpose. God is up to something. So that brings us to the question this morning, and the question is this. How does God help us to display our faith? What kind of help does James give us that God has given to him about this? And so there are four things that I want to do this morning, and then I want to end with a very, very specific application. That's where we're going, all right? So here's the first thing we want to do. We want to know and we want to see that, that James is saying something important to us this morning, and the way that he's going to do this the way he's going to talk to us about true religion, and that's what we're sort of after today, true religion, James says, is depicted, it's pictured in a proverb. And James is going to introduce a proverb that, that will help us capture what he has in mind. Okay, now proverb is a simple, memorable statement that paints a picture of truth for us that is Portable. In other words, when we get the proverb, we get the truth and we can carry it wherever we go because if we can remember the proverb, we can get back to the truth. So the first thing that James does is he is going to depict true religion by a proverb. So let's, let's listen in to James in verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone, and here's the proverb, everyone must be quick to hear. Slow to anger, slow to speak rather, and slow to anger. So there's our proverb. It starts with this observation that that James makes. He says, know this. And he's calling attention to something that he's about to say. In other words, there's urgency to this. It's like James saying to us this morning, now I really want you to listen up. There's something you need to capture. There's something you need to know and it has to do with this word of truth that I introduced to you in the last section. I talked to you about wisdom from above that will guide you through and sustain you through a trial, and then I talked to you about the word of truth that delivered you from temptations. Now there's something I want you to know. So this statement sort of looks back, it's like a hinge. It looks back and then it points us ahead. It launches us forward, and James says, there's something you need to know. And the thing you need to know, I'm going to tell it to you in a proverb. There's an instruction that I'm going to give you. And here's the proverb. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. And be slow to anger. Remember I said that James is sort of when he says, know this. He's hinging back. What is it that you are to know, and what is it that you are to hear? There's something that James has been talking about that he wants you to be quick to hear. The idea here is is eager pursuit. There is this eagerness to hear this. And so what is it that James wants you to be eager to hear? And and, and it's real clear when you go back to what James has been saying. Up in verse 5. There is a wisdom that comes down from God that he gives when you ask him for it. And later we find out where that wisdom is located. That wisdom is located, if you look down to verse 18, that wisdom is located in the word of truth. And the proof of the power of that wisdom is that it brought you out of darkness into life. Now, James says, here's the proverb, be quick to hear. What are you supposed to be quick to hear? That wisdom that is in that word. And the proof that you are quick to hear, and by the way, the word hear in this context is an interesting word. It's not private listening. I mean, if you go back to the time in which James was writing, most people did not have any access to a personal copy of God's word. So this is not James saying, make sure that you go and have a private time in the Word, although you should have those things. This is James talking about what would happen in the corporate worship of the church. Remember, James is writing to the church, and he is saying, you need to come eagerly to sit under the the, the public proclamation, the public exhortation, and the public instruction that comes from God's Word. Be eager." to hear what, what God's pastors are going to say to you. And he's the pastor over these people. So you can kind of see where James is going. Be quick to hear. And, and the proof that you are eagerly receiving the word of God is going to show up in the rest of the proverb. If you are eagerly receiving the word of God in your life, two things are going to be true. You are going to be slow to use your mouth and you're going to be slow to use your temper. You're going to be slow to use your mouth, and you're going to be slow to use your temper. And the idea here is that there is a specific way that the people James is writing to have been using their mouth, and it is really clear as you get into chapter 3 and into chapter 4 that their mouth has been rolling because it has been fueled by the anger that is coming out of their heart. And so James says, as you listen to this proverb, be swift to hear. The thing that you are supposed to be eager to hear is the word of God. And how you hear that word of God is going to be evidenced by how you control your mouth and how you control your temper. And the reason that James is so urgent about this is this, the righteousness of God is at stake. There's something that is coming out of you and it is not accomplishing the righteousness of God. The word righteousness of God that you see here in this text is is referring to two things. There are two concepts that James has in mind. There is righteous conduct that God expects of his first fruits. You are the first fruits of the shalom that God is bringing. And so what should be showing up in your life are, are, is a conduct that is marked by righteousness that pleases God. And then secondly, God has righteous purposes that he is accomplishing in his world. There are righteousness. There is a righteousness that God expects us to live out. And then there is a righteous purpose that he is accomplishing in his world. And he is saying to you and to me, your anger does not produce either of those. The wrath of man, the anger, the stored up, pent up anger that boils out of our mouth and explodes out of our hands when we finally can't take it anymore does not accomplish either of the purposes that God has. To build in you and display through you a righteous conduct that pleases Him and to accomplish His own righteous purposes in life. Now think about the implications of this for James's readers. I mean, they were suffering under fierce and prolonged and unjust persecution. Many of them had suffered unbearable loss, massive economic reversal. Some of them were being brutally reviled, unjustly treated, unfairly maligned, ruthlessly persecuted by their neighbors and their co-workers for their faith. And as this went on and on and on and on over time, the temptation to take matters into their own hands and to use their mouth to curse and malign those that were abusing them and to fight and resist their oppressors was very great, extraordinarily great. And it wasn't just in that day. It's true in ours. I mean, we grow angry just listening to the news. You think about the unfair things that are being said, the unfair things that are being done, the unjust laws that are, are, are happening, the unjust statements and actions that go on day after day after day after day, and you know what starts to happen? There's this spirit that just builds up in us, and I mean, it just starts roiling and broiling in us, and pretty soon it spills out of our mouth, and sometimes it even spills out of our actions, and the problem with this in the early church was that it wasn't It didn't just target itself externally. By the time you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4, these believers had actually targeted their anger in words and deeds toward other Christians in their churches. And so this was a real problem. And James says, now, none of that, none of what is coming out of you is actually going to affect or bring about the righteousness of God. So here's here's a valid question. Because we can couch all of this in, in like righteous indignation. Well, I'm just righteously indignant and then all of a sudden we, we're, we're, we're saying things and doing things. And James comes along as our pastor and he says to us, that does not accomplish the righteousness that God is trying to do in his world and it doesn't accomplish the righteousness that you should be displaying to the world. That does not accomplish God's purposes and God's righteousness. And so a fair question is, well, James, what does? If, if, my, if my angry words and angry deeds that are coming at all of this injustice that is in my life and around me, if, if that's not the right way to do it, then what will accomplish the righteousness of God? And James takes you all the way to the end of the book and he says this, the effectual, fervent what? Prayers of what? A righteous man, a man who is controlling his mouth and a man who is controlling his heart can come to God and pray and his fervent prayer will accomplish what his wrath cannot. This is a stunning proverb. And that brings us to this. So, what will true religion demand of us? What, what? Upon what does it depend? So, if if I need to to to, to be swift to hear and be slow to speak and be slow to anger to display true religion, then then how do I do this? And, and the answer is this: It depends on grace-enabled humility. There is grace enabled humility. And that's the second thing that James talks about. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. And so James brings another command here and the command is urgent. Receive the word. And the word receive, there is the idea of welcome. Welcome what God has to say through the instruction of his word. Now remember, James is talking to a group of people who are just like us. They're going to come together regularly to hear the preaching and the instruction and the application of God's word into their life. And James says to them, I have an urgent thing for you. And the urgent thing for you is receive and welcome that teaching into your life. And for that to happen, and I was talking about the idea here that, that, you know, this is not jaded predisposition. Well, you're going to have to prove it to me three times before I'll even listen. And this is not neutral, right? This is not us coming and going, well, whatever. The, the, what James has in mind here is an eager welcoming. So as you come to hear the word of God preached and taught, we, this, the, the, the pastors and, and uh, spiritual leaders of this church, are very, very careful who we put before you. Because we realize what James is saying. You are called by God to come with an eager willingness to receive. Now, that doesn't mean you check your brain at the door. Because you do want to go and study the scriptures to make sure these things are so. But there ought to be a predisposed eagerness to hear the instruction that God has prepared for you that week. That's why for us, it is so important that we guard this pulpit and that people who stand here are people that we have confidence are going to interpret this word accurately and correctly and don't have an agenda to do it. And so here's the command, receive the word, and then he tells you how to do that with meekness, with humility. And that humility is going to be accompanied by putting off certain actions and attitudes. And and he describes it this way, all filthiness, and all that remains of wickedness. And the idea is that when the word of God, that the word of truth in verse 18 uh, of chapter 1 birthed you, it cleansed you, and, and it gave you a new man and a new heart. And it dealt with all of your sins. But you and I live in a world that is full of rampant wickedness. And we have a sin nature. And James is actually saying, as you come to hear the word of God, here's the mindset. You are coming with a predisposition to take off any sinful thing or anything that is defiling you that the word of God is revealing to you. So there is the idea of putting off certain actions and attitudes. And then there is the requirement of displaying a particular attitude and life orientation. And the idea there is humility. With humility. So what do, you, what do you mean, Pastor James, when you talk about the word humility? He's not talking about a verbal concept. He's not talking about someone who speaks poorly about himself or herself, not, not someone who is making sure you know that they're humble. You know, you hear people say things like, well, far be it from me. Or I'm the last person that should ever, and then they go ahead and do the thing that should be far from them, or that they're the last person that should do. Or, you know, there, there are times where people want to make sure you know how humble they are, and that's not the idea. Here, here's the point. True humility will show itself in your speech and in your demeanor, but, but it's more than just that. Humility here, meekness here, is the idea of submission. Submission are you coming to the Word of God with a life that is marked by submission? You know, the thing about humility and submission, it's not something you can put on when you walk in the door and take off when you go out the back door. It's something that ought to mark your life. And so here's here's the point. James is getting real direct with these people. He is saying to them, if you want to display a religion that is true, that is acceptable to God and credible to men, then you are going to have to have a life that receives the word of God. And for that to happen, you have to be marked by humility. There has to be a spirit of submission, joyful, willing submission to the word of God, to the will of God, and to the spiritual authorities that God has put in your life. And he's gonna get real direct with these people in chapter three, actually in chapter two. He's gonna say, now let me explain to you where this isn't showing up. It's not showing up by the way you treat the rich and the poor. It's not showing up. Humility is not showing up with what's coming out of your mouth. And it's certainly not showing up in chapter four with the relational conflict and stuff that's just happening all over. And it's not showing up in your life when you decide that you're going to do whatever you want to do. You're going to go to a city, and you're going to make money, and you're going to come back, and it's going to be great in chapter 5. James says, I'm, I'm just going to show you all the places in your life where a lack of submission is showing up. And so that brings us to a really uncomfortable question this morning that I have had to ask myself and you have to ask yourself if James were looking at us would he say those kind of things about us are you the kind of person who is predisposed to the submissive willing followership in the role and place where God has placed you have you ever worked with somebody that's passive aggressive you know what I'm talking about you ever, you know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you ever work with somebody who's passive-aggressive, you all sit in a room and, uh, and, and, and your boss has you in this room for a conference and, and everybody gets an assignment and and this guy uh, or this lady, whoever it is, uh, decides, you know, that's really not what I want to do. But they just smile. And so you come back the next week and and, and you know what? There's a whole new thing going on over here, and after a while you start looking at that and everybody starts to notice you know what this person is passive aggressive you see it in the workplace you've experienced it and what starts to happen when you run into that person and they start talking when you've been in a room with them for a year or two at your job and they're passive aggressive and then they want to come to you and tell you how to live the, how you should live your life what Wait, do you give their words and the answer is what none this james point that's james point that's why he said if you want your religion true religion to have any impact you cannot adopt a passive aggressive heart to god there has to be in you a willing submission so what does that look like and what makes it possible And the answer is, there's an enablement. How did I go from a person who resisted God and and who despised his word to somebody who wants to obey it? And the answer is, there's a gracious enablement. And the gracious enablement is found here in the text. It is in the concept of implanted. There, There was a time where God implanted his word in your heart. Now, this is exactly what Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant. In the new covenant, we find that God would replace our hard heart with a soft and receptive heart and that he would write his words on our heart and he would put his spirit in us to help us understand and obey that word. You say, what's the answer to my passive aggressiveness when it comes to God? What's what's the answer to my lack of humility? And the answer is the implanted word that is in your heart if you're a Christian. If you're a genuine Christian this morning, Jesus Christ inaugurated a new covenant with you, and he put a new heart in you, and he wrote his words on that heart, and he gave you his spirit to enable you to understand and obey that word. That's the answer. That's the answer. And that word is able to deliver your life. That implanted word can deliver you from your anger. That implanted word can deliver you from the way you're using your mouth that is cutting and hurting people. That implanted word can remove and defeat The resistance of your flesh, that implanted word is able to deliver you. And that brings us to the third thing. And the third thing is this. James is going to say true religion is depicted in a proverb. That's what we saw in verses 19 and 20. And then it depends on grace-enabled humility. That's verse 21. But in verses 22 through 25, it's developed through grace or through word-based obedience. That's the third thing that you see here in this text. James says, prove yourselves doers of the words or word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. James says, all right, you're trying to develop and display a living faith, a wholehearted, single focused, fully trusting faith. And that is to be displayed in a religion that is true. It is genuine. So here's what it's going to take. It is going to take word-based obedience. And and, and this is the instruction he gives. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers. This is a very pointed, rubber-meets-the-road statement that James is writing to his beloved believers. He is saying to them, look, You can tell me all you want about your faith. You can tell me all you want about the gospel. You can tell me all you want about how wonderful it is to be a Christian, but here's what will make your faith credible. Prove yourself. Demonstrate. In other words, bring credibility to your speech. Prove yourselves. And and the way you're going to do that, the evidence that is going to back up the claim that you have a living, authentic faith is this. Do the word of God. Don't just hear it. Don't just talk it. Do it. And he's going to give you uh, an illustration. He's going to talk about two men, and the two men are doing the very same thing. The two men are gazing intently into something. And he's going to give you an illustration uh, in the first century. He's going to take the illustration of a mirror. Now, how many of you looked in a mirror this morning? Let me, let me just ask you this way. Is there anybody that didn't look in a mirror this morning? And, and we could probably spot you if you didn't, right? But, but we all looked in mirrors this morning. The mirror that James is talking about is not that. If you have in your mind the mirror that you looked at this morning, when you got and you looked in that mirror, there you were in all of your glory. I mean, you saw all of the beauty that God designed in you in that mirror this morning. I'm being charitable, right? But that's what, what happened. The mirror that James has in mind was nothing like that. They didn't have mirrors like that in the first century. What they had were these polished brass mirrors that were at a high gloss, and they were very expensive, so the normal person hardly ever got the opportunity to look into one of those mirrors, And when you looked into that polished brass, you had to kind of look really hard to kind of figure out the distortions so you could get an idea of what you look like. In the ancient world, very few times would a person ever have the opportunity to see with his own eyes what everybody else saw every day. And sometimes they would get the rare privilege of looking in one of those brass mirrors and they would look intently. And James says... That's what these two men are doing, and the mirror is the perfect law of God. I want you to notice some things about this perfect law of God. The word perfect there is describing this law, and, and it's the idea that someone has come and perfected it. Someone has come and fulfilled it. And so now this perfect law that has been fulfilled, and we know who fulfilled it, it's Jesus, this perfected law, this perfect law that's been fulfilled, now perfects us it liberates us so that we can now live the way God intended us to live so think think with James now James described this concept in chapter 1 verse 5 as wisdom from above in verse 18 it was the word of truth that brought you life and here in this text it's the word which is able to save your soul up in verse 21 and now that wisdom, that word of truth, that word which is able to save your your soul is now described as the law. And James is intentionally moving that image so that you realize this is not just a word to be received, and it's not just a word to be heard, it's a word to be obeyed. There are things God wants you to do because of this word. And, And the way you prove that your living faith is actually genuine is that you joyfully receive and you consistently obey whatever that word instructs and whatever it teaches. And so James says, here are the two men. One is a professional hearer. He is a word hearer. He looks intently into this word. Can you think of professional word hearers today? What might they look like? They can't wait for the new sermon series. They got their notebook out. They've got a pile of notes. They got a study Bible marked up. They have their favorite preachers. And I mean, they've got books and commentaries. They are hearers who are looking intently into the Word. It is possible that some of them are professional what? Hearers. And then... James says, the other man is a personal obeyer. He is a faithful obeyer. So what is the difference between a professional hearer of the word and a personal faithful obeyer of the word? This is not a trick question. What's the difference? They actually do something with what they have studied and learned and heard. And, and, And again, remember I said, you know, there are times as you preach when you're studying something and you're like, lord i can't say that and you don't get to blunt the edge of what james is saying this is where james is coming at he's coming to these people and he's coming to us and he's warning those people and he's warning us of a very real danger it is very possible that in a church like ours we have the immense deception and danger of of being a church of professional hearers i mean just think about our lives most of us have had more than ordinary exposure to God's Word in our life. We went to, grew up in a Christian home. We went to a Christian school. We went to a Christian university. We have studied. We, we, we listen to Christian podcasts. We have multiple Bibles. We, 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 we're in discipleship groups. We do all of it. And James says, you're like the man who looked intently in the mirror. Now, what comes next is going to determine whether you're a professional hearer or a faithful person obeyer and it's this what do you do with what you've heard and so that's the last thing that James says there the person who obeys is the one who's blessed I mean do you see that in the text the one who but the doer who acts he this one will be blessed in his doing so let's just, get, let's just get down to where it is. So you come to church, and you hear the preaching of the word, and it cuts. And you're like, oh. And, you, you know, you've got your notebook full of notes. You've got your Bible marked up. It cuts. And you decide, you know what, I'm just not going to listen to that. I'm not, and, and there's an anger that starts to come up in your heart. James warned you about that, right? James said, now look, here's the evidence of a submissive heart. You deal with your anger. And then as that just builds week after week after week because it just gets worse, or maybe you have this plan that you've got planned out and the spiritual leaders in your life come to you that know you, not the ones that don't know you, the ones that actually know you and say to you, you know what, actually I don't think that's a good idea. comes up in your heart. And over time, what happens to the preaching of God's word from those leaders? You just tamp it down. Because that anger is causing you to speak in your heart. Pretty soon, it's not just in your heart. It's coming out of your mouth. And the very thing that James warns you about in the proverb is now happening to you. And, and James is saying, now, now, the person who does that is not Blessed the person who willingly receives the careful preaching and teaching of God's word in their life, that person will be blessed as he does what the word instructs. And that brings us to the final thing, and that is this, and this is where James has been going, and that is that true religion, the religion that is going to display a living faith, the practice of your faith that is going to display a wholehearted, single-focused fully trusting faith is displayed by gospel-shaped living. And James says, now look, there is a real danger of you deceiving yourself about this. And he says it right at the end here in, in verse 26. If anybody thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives himself about what? About his religion. I mean, you might think you are a very spiritual person because of all the hearing that you do and because of all the studying you do and all of the things that you understand about God's word. But basically, God says to you, if this is not produced and displayed through gospel-shaped living that is obedient to what what God has to say, you have deceived yourself. You haven't deceived God And trust me, you probably haven't deceived others, but you have deceived yourself. And so basically he moves right to the evidence of true religion that God accepts and that men believe. And he's got three things. Now think about what James could have pointed to. James had a reputation in the early church of being amazingly pious. He went to the temple Every day. When he went to the temple, he wore a linen garment. That was an amazing expense for a first century person like James. He was very careful to obey Torah. I mean, he never let, according to tradition, he never let a razor touch his hair or his beard, which was a sign of piety. And then when he died, it was discovered that he had huge calluses on his knees because he would spend time praying for Israel, and he would spend time praying for people. And James could have said, Now, you want to know what true religion looks like? Let me tell you what it looks like. Look at what I wear when I go to the temple. Look at how I care for myself. I don't know anything, I, I'm, I'm fastidious about uh, the, the razor piece in the Torah. And by the way, look at my knees. My knees, I'm just telling you, these knees. Didn't get there just by accident. These knees, were, were, I mean, these knees, these are the knees, right? James did not point to any of that. James doesn't look, look at what I wear, look, look at what I do, look at, look at how this works. James says, let me tell you the evidence of religion that matters to God and that's going to impact people. Here's what, it, here's what it looks like. It looks like a, a spirit-controlled tongue. In the congregation that James is preaching to, there were believers who were using their mouth in two ways. They would see a poor person and they would look at that person and they would say, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. That's our equivalent to saying, may God bless you, bless your heart. I hope you have a wonderful blessed day. James says, that's how some of you are using your tongue." And then some of you are using that same tongue, not just in that way, you're using it to curse other people while at the same time you show up at church to sing praises and utter prayers to God with that same mouth. James says, if you want to know what true religion looks like, it looks like a spirit-controlled tongue, and then it looks like a compassionate heart. It looks like a heart. That looks like God. Notice how he says here, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father. And then he says, here's what it looks like. It does what God does. It cares about the people God cares for. And he brings up two downtrodden people, orphans and widows, in their affliction. Now, there's a debate whether or not this is every orphan or every widow, but it certainly was the orphans and widows that were part of the community of Christ. And here are people that are walking right by them and saying, hey, I hope you have a good day. Be warmed and filled. Go in peace. Shalom. And James says that tongue is revealing a certain heart that is not at all like God's. And then it's a consecrated life. Keep yourself unstained by the world. Consecrate your life to God and carefully guard your life so that you remain fully aligned with the kingdom Of which you are a part. James is writing to people who were living in all the little kingdoms of the world, but they were part of one big kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And they were to align themselves with his values and his objectives. And James says when you do this, when you control your mouth, when you have a compassionate heart and you have a consecrated life, and you live that out in humble obedience to the word of truth the word that brought you life, the wisdom from above, the perfected law of God that brings you to perfection. Your faith will make a difference. I want to end with a particular way that I think our church can do this. And uh, after I pray here, I'm going to ask Pastor Mike to come and uh, close our service. Over the last... Probably three weeks my heart and i know many of your hearts have become increasingly burdened about what is happening to our brothers and sisters in russia and in ukraine how many of you know people in russia and how many of you know people in ukraine uh either family friends extended uh, family that that are being impacted by what's happening over can i see your hands all right there's a lot of you in our church so as I began thinking about <clears throat> maybe what the Lord would have us do, and I was working through this text, you know, what does a, what does a credible living faith look like in a church like ours? You know, we pray, and we, the, the fervent, faithful praying of righteous people avails much, and so we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And there are other things that we can do. We can, we can write letters. We can uh, participate in things that show solidarity. But is there something more that God might want for our church. And I believe there is. So next Sunday, I've invited Bob Roberts. Many of you know Bob Roberts, um, uh, ran the uh, children's program um, and junior boot camp at the Wilds, I think, for almost 20 years. And his pastor, Pastor Sergei Minka of the Word of Life Slavic Baptist Church, to come and take our morning service. Pastor Minka has many, many contacts in Ukraine and in the Slavic community, uh, including people in Russia, that they are trying to help. And so what I'd like to do is I would like to have him come and preach so that we can pray about whether or not God wants our church to have a gospel partnership that goes beyond praying with this community of people in Ukraine and in Russia. This is not political. We are not making any political statements about what is going on over there, and who's at fault, and how it all came about. We're just acknowledging that in both countries, there are God's people who are suffering immensely, and I wonder if God is not moving our congregation to do something about that. Now, we have our own needs. We need a building. We we have financial pressures. You all have done some amazing things. God has enabled you as a congregation to do an amazing thing this year in your giving. But we have needs. And so there's a great temptation to say, well, maybe we should just pray and let that be enough. I actually think we may need to do more than that as a congregation. So what does that look like for us? I am not sure. I know. I think immediately as Pastor Minka comes, we'll have a sense that maybe God might be uniting our two congregations so that we can pray fervently for specific people that uh, are in this congregation and in that congregation that are being affected. And then short-term, I would like to give, as a congregation, Pastor Minka and the Word of Life economic resources for gospel-fueled aid. Think about what would happen if there is a Christian family in Ukraine and they receive some economic aid from Pastor Minka's church and from our church and they're able to take that aid and use some of that aid for an unsafe family next door and say, hey, God loves you and God hasn't forgot you and there's a gospel opportunity. And that's what I mean by gospel-fueled aid. And then long-term, I, I want to pray and ask you to pray whether there might not be more tangible ways and more deeper levels uh, that God may want us to partner with a church like this once the war is over because that's when the real work is going to happen. When this conflict is done and everybody's trying to put back lives that have been absolutely shattered, all of the emotional responses are gone, all of the marches are done, all of the little letters are done. And where are God's people? Because that's my burden. I want to think long-term, how do we get involved with a community of faith that can actually do work long-term with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia? So I want you to pray this week. Pastor Minka will be here on Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. But you pray with us that God will show us what we need to do so that we can display exactly what James has been talking about, true religion before God. Amen. Lord, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Lord, I pray that this word that James has delivered to us, fierce as it may have been, gracious as it certainly was because it came from you, would minister to us and that we would receive it, not for what it isn't, it isn't the word of a human, but for what it is. It is your word and we honor you, and we praise you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.